Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein. This week's share will be about something in the headlines. A recent New York County Supreme Court ruling that YU, Yeshiva University, is a non-religious organization and is subject to the New York City Human Rights Law and immediately granted the YU Pride Alliance, that's the, the gays, the LGBTQA, the full equal accommodations, advantages, facilities, privileges to all other student groups at Yeshiva University. Basically, what, what is one of the Aseris Hadibris, Lysinov, and all its company thing, is now have been erased by a New York County Supreme Court judge, Lynn Cutler, and YU has to accept the gay groups, and not only accept them, but uh, again, Full equal accommodations, advantages, privileges. Now, why is this relevant? Most of you, my listeners, I would say the majority are not from Yeshiva University. They would say, what does this have to do with me? And the answer is, we'll hear from the attorney, a very prominent religious rights attorney, Eric Baxter from Washington, D.C., who's going to tell us every Yeshiva in New York has to worry about this. Here's Eric Baxter. There are few schools, few religious schools in the nation that are as religious as Yeshiva University. And so the ruling uh, really is a threat to all religious institutions in New York uh, because it suggests that you're not religious unless you meet some standard that a judge finds sufficient. Now let me give you a little background. YU was arguably the most liberal of you know all the religious schools, that they allowed gay groups to congregate in YU, but it was under sort of like a don't ask, don't tell policy. Look, we, we don't have opinions about groups. You can make groups about whatever. We're not going to appoint. By the way, this uh, got the ire of some Adashim Gedalim. Here's what Rav Gift had to say about the policy of sort of don't ask, don't tell. I received a little card, the 1986 Gay Pride Guide, page 63, states that the Shiva University has an Einstein Association of Gays and Lesbians. Why is everyone silent? When I got this card, I became <laughs> shocked. My alma mater is Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yitzchok Elchona. Were it not for that Yeshiva, who knows where I would have been today? And in that university, you have an association, an official association, gays and lesbians. That in Yeshiva University, be an official association of Mishkevskhornikis who practice those things for which the Umes that lived in Eretz Yisroel were driven out from Eretz Yisroel to make place for us. I wrote to the president of the university, what are you doing about it? I'm overwhelmed. I studied in the yeshiva. I cannot fathom that my alma mater should have sunk such a degree. What was President Lamb's answer? We have great hearted, but we cannot shut them down because that would be discrimination. That would be discrimination. And when we will practice discrimination, all government aid to the university will be immediately stopped. You understand what that means? We are ready to sell all our beliefs for the sake of government funds. That mono-Islam, how far can we sink? Valgergoy, Vetso, Azai, was feeling totally Zionist institution, mischief school. That's discrimination. I have no words for it. 
Then that's the hope. In my day, the boys who wanted university studies went to CCNY, to NYU, and to Columbia. Can't we do it today? Plus, you have your own university. Contrary to what I should be brought up, big face. Must that be the way to live? And you call that the disgrace. You call it Yeshiva University. Take off the name of Yeshiva, so it'll be another university like Columbia and all the others. Of a Yeshiva, where you list the Yeshiva itself as a school in the university. This is the world we live in. You can't get moving. We must do something to stop this We must do something. And we can't just brush it off and say, if it hadn't been in the United States, no yeshiva would be here today. All European yeshivas that came here after the war, because there was a yeshiva who had laid the foundations of yeshiva training. And it's our specific duty to see to it as Torah Jews that this should stop. Wow. Some pretty strong words from Rav Gift On both hands, he says, there would be no Torah in America without Rabbi Yitzhak without YU. And then on the other hand, he says, how could you possibly allow for these clubs? So I asked a few of the uh, Rabbanim at YU, and then none of them were allowed to talk because they said in a litigation, anything you say can and will be used against you. So I spoke to one YU, very Chashev alumni, and this is what he said. He said, YU has opened door policy and there are thousands of friar kids who come there because their parents want their kids to become Shemri Shabbos to, ha- to have Nisuei Yisrael to ultimately eat kosher and they're very matzliach many of them all of them leave from them when they came out to some darga so you know when you have an open door policy and you say all of Achenu Bnei Yisrael are my brothers and you have many people coming from totally secular backgrounds it's hard to start setting rules what they can or can't do in private. And remember, he said, these clubs are private clubs. They're not recognized by the yeshiva. He says, if we wanted to have a closed-door policy, that it's only, you know, for B'nai Tyro, this, he says, clearly we could make much more, you know, we'd be able to control it much more. But here he says, you know, Klal Yisrael has a lot of problems, and we embrace all of Klal Yisrael. And additionally, he said, there's a lot of, you know, LBGTQ boys and girls who come from Haredi families who end up in YU. Of course, it's the only place that they say we don't judge the person. The behavior may be yasa, but we don't judge the person. So he said, Rav Gift is talking for tells, and we're talking about for tells doesn't have a lot of, uh, doesn't have a thousands of fry kids going through there every year. We're talking about we're, we're a much broader organization than tells is. I don't want to get into the politics of whether it's correct or not. I'm just stating how you see historically this has been an issue. And I also want to do one more point. The, the topic here is not about whether we should or should not um, judge members of the LBG2Q community. That's a whole different session. Here it's a different question. It's, do we say 
whether we embrace you or not, irre irrelevant, do we say, let's change what says in the Torah based upon, you know, uh, uh, the identity of a certain community? A, a certain community identifies that we want you to change Mashkasa Torah. You know, today it's gay, tomorrow it's Shabbos, then it's Chaydish, then it's Mila, it's desecration of the body, it's the environment, maybe it's whatever it may be. We don't move, we, we don't change one ice of what's Kasava Torah. That is the debate here, not whether the person is right or wrong. It's, that is totally not, we are not judging. That is not the debate of this week's topic. The issue is because of the demands of a certain community, do we say we're going to change something that says in the Torah? Well, so you're asking if they allowed it. So then what's the debate about? Well, a number of uh, Jew, uh, students in YU who are gay said it's not enough that we're allowed to congregate, but we want you sort of to give smicha. We want you to acknowledge us. We want to march in the parade. We want advantages, facilities, privileges, full equal accommodations. It's not enough that you allow us, but we want you sort of to give your imprintor on it as well. It's not unlike um, the two gentlemen, two gay gentlemen who went into a bakery, a Christian bakery, and they said, look, can you bake uh, a wedding cake for our marriage, knowing that it went against every religious fiber? And and it's interesting because on one hand, their cry is one of sensitivity. Look at us, we're human, we're different, but we're okay. We're also, we also have a tzalim alikim, but let us live. I mean, you know, give us respect. On the other hand, we want you we don't respect the right that you have to keep your beliefs, which is it's in our Ten Commandments, and we can't acknowledge it. We can't give it at our imprimatur. So the, it's ironic that the person, the, the the very cry of those who are saying "understand us" is done like they go into the temple and they ask the rabbi, "Please bless what you know to be according to your very most core beliefs," and which generations, thousands of years of Jews have died to keep the Torah. We want you to acknowledge it as of sensitivity for us, whereas we are perfectly allowed. We don't acknowledge any need for sensitivity of you. Somewhat of an ironic position, but that is the position. We know and the judge ruled that they now have to have a YU club with the, the imprintor, sort of the hechsher of the yeshiva. I imagine they could, they could have pages in the yearbook and they'll be marching v'cholu v'cholu. Now, what's the halachic problem? We are, after all, a halachic show. The Gemara says in Saita, Agrippas HaMelech was originally non-Jewish, and then he became the king. He was Megayer. And when he came to the Pasuk, A king cannot be from non-Jewish lineage. He started crying. He said, I gave my whole life to, I was Megayer, I became, and I, how do I deal with this Pasuk? So what did they say? The Rabbanon, whoever they were in that generation, they said to him, don't worry, don't worry about the Pasuk. You're our brother, you're our brother, our brother. Well, look away from the Pasuk. And what does the Gemara say? It caused the Gzeras Mavis on Kal Yisrael, a terrible edict against Kal Yisrael, that they basically allowed for the Ziyuf HaTayra. The Marshal, who lived in the early 1500s, he was a little older than their mother. Her mother had greater fame because the Shulchan Aruch was more accepted than this farm, the Marshal, more widely accepted. Paskin is that Ziyuf HaTayra, in other words, trying to say this piece of the Torah is not relevant to me, or etc. It's Yerig Vahal Yavar, from, partially from this Gemara. So, therefore, the yeshiva at this point has three options, or any yeshiva, if some Gay group sued Tarvadas, Mir, Chaim, Belen, pick your favorite yeshiva, and said, we demand that you ha you acknowledge a gay group. According to lawyer Baxter, you'd be in the same case, in the same position. So you would have three options. One is, close the yeshiva. Would you go to a Jewish school where some of the Aseris Hadibris were erased? 
I mean, we could never do that. We know when the Seleucids, the, the Hellenists, they tried to be mavatal, Shabbos, Chaydesh, Mila, portions of the Torah, who's Yerig Val Yavar. And Chaydesh certainly doesn't come to the Parsha of Arias. Halachically, it doesn't matter whether it's a Greek or a Jew who's, who's passing the judgment on you that you have to take something out of the Torah. You could alternatively say that when they said a chinuata, so they were basically, but Ben says they were, they were flattering, they were sort of acknowledging what the, uh, what Agrippa said. On the other hand, you could take the position that since they would do it on the protest and screaming and, you know, basically saying, look, you know, we have no choice, but it's, it's, it goes against everything, every fiber of the Torah. You could maybe take the position that it doesn't have a din of chanifa of a chinuata. Alternatively, a third choice is to say, look, we just won't accommodate the ruling. In other words, they may or may not get a, a stay. I believe ultimately this will go to the Supreme Court. But they may, they may or may not get a stay, but they could say we, we won't accommodate. Now here's something amazing. Rav Yashiber Salavechik, and here he's quoted by his Talmud, Ravaran Rakefet, predicted something not unlike this 60 years ago. He spoke about the ghosts that could come out of certain uh, decisions made by uh, the legal department over at YU. Listen to Rav Rakefet. If we don't allow it to remain focal to the institution, the yeshiva could go down the drain. Not only will we lose an institution, but we will have lost our youth. Orthodoxy as a whole will be lost. The yeshiva has endured so long only because of a few individuals. We especially owe a debt of gratitude to Dr. Debelkin. He has taken on the financial load of yeshiva and has paid a high price in blood, sweat, and tears to build the institution. He has become indispensable for yeshiva. Now we are facing a crisis, a second call to take a second look and realize what yeshiva stands for. We extend a helping hand to Dr. Belkin while there is still time to take action. There is an organizational crisis at Yeshiva. Structural changes have been made in the Charter lately. To say that these changes and the way they have been executed involve risk or that I am concerned is an understatement. I am frightened. For financial reasons, Yeshiva College and Stern College have been recognized into fully secular institutions in accordance from some regent in Albany. I do not even wish to speak about the catalogs. There is nothing to say. They are completely secular. I have my anxieties. It is possible that what I see are only ghosts. Nevertheless, I see them and I am afraid. The uniqueness of yeshiva was that it contained a modern college education with the traditional yeshiva training. And here there are brackets. At this point, Dr. Belkin interjected, quote, this is how it's going to remain, Rav Salavechik. Have no fear. Close the brackets. As long as Dr. Belkin is president, I am certain that the character of this institution will not be changed no matter how great the pressure. However, let Dr. Belkin forgive me. I remember a syllogism from Greek logic. Quote, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. 
end quote. I am concerned. Who will succeed Dr. Belkin? With Dr. Belkin as president, I would shoot for the stars. With his successor, I would not even start out for the moon. The students wanted to pick today, pick it today, but I asked them not to. Brackets. A voice from the audience called out. There are 200 students outside picketing. The Rev responded. There would have been 500 had I not stopped them. They are the finest bunch of boys and girls have I met in 40 or 50 years. They are sensitive, intelligent, committed, and ready to give of themselves. I have the opportunity to speak to you to express my anxieties. They have no opportunity to express theirs. I identify them. I have given 29 years of my life to yeshiva, and I don't want to see everything this has been achieved during this time destroyed by the brutal hand of Obama. So the, here are the guests we're going to have on to speak about it, both from a legal point of view. If you have a yeshiva, you should be listening. We'll have Eric Baxter of Beckett Law Firm, who we had on before saying your yeshiva could be next according to this rule. We'll have Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. When I asked him straight out if a judge in Florida uh, would make a ruling like this, would you keep your shul open? This is what he responded. They came to your shul and they said, our shul, we demand uh, a club with your full etc., acceptance, uh, visibility, marching, whatever it may be. What would you do then? It's an absolute non-starter. We're an Orthodox shul, we're a Torah institution, and a person who wants to join, we love, we welcome, and we'll make space, but you have to come here on our rules and not impose yours. And if they come to you, they get a court order that the Boca Raton Synagogue has to have a gay club, How, what do you react? We'd go to the end of the earth to fight it. We would stop uh, nowhere, we wouldn't stop to, to fight it. And, and ultimately, the same way that we would never institutionalize a violation of Shabbos or of Kashrus or of Taras HaMeshbacha or of anything else, we, we couldn't compromise that of ourselves. We wouldn't, we'd be uncompromising in that area because this is a core central fight. If it's not this, it'll be the next thing, and we have to stay true in principle for who we are. We'll have Yaakov Sasson, a, a Jewish historian. He's going to speak about the Nitziv who shut down Volazhin for also a, a government edict that went against the Torah. This should make for a very interesting shear, both in halacha and hashkafa. If you ask me what I believe, I say that Klal Yisrael has survived thousands of years of attack on, you know, Yiddishkeit and the Torah. I mean, it goes back to Nebuchadnezzar. He was hemmed at Salem Behechel. He put a cross into the Kodesh HaKadashim. The Yavanim put a statue of Zeus up in Yerushalayim, they said, and that was basically Hanukkah, that's what Hanukkah happened. We have Hannah and her seven sons, she said, eat pork. She's watched one child killed every day. Everybody knows the story of one child a day, they jumped off the roof and she was the last one to eighth to die because we, we don't see any leeway. And when somebody takes, you know, a black magic marker to the, to the Torah in Masada, I mean, just historically, when they killed thousands because they refused to convert, when the, uh, when Hadrian wanted to be Mavatal Mila, 
I say that we've been under attack now for thousands of years, but Netzach Yisrael Yeshaker, look at Klal Yisrael. More Torah is being learned today than in, since the Churban. And what do I say to all these who, who want to try to attack such a holy institution, such a Makam Torah like Wayu? I say three times a day when I say, Lamal Shinamalti, Sikva, Vachal Oive, Amcha, Meheri, Kareso. That's uh, my, what, what I believe will be the end of this story. Before we go to our program, I want to say a thought on the Parsha. Koirach is the Parsha of Kinnah. He was jealous. He was filled with envy. He was a cousin of both Aaron and Moshe, but they took everything. Moshe was got Kesa Torah. Aaron got Kesa Kahuna. I mean, poor Koirach, he was left out in the cold. He was jealous. And here's what's interesting. According to Chazal, Kairach really had everything. He was extremely rich, as an expression in Yiddish. Reich vi Kairach, as rich as Kairach. Very wealthy. Wealthier than Moshe and Aaron. He was also very smart. He was a pikeach. He was a chacham. Rashi brings in the beginning. Kairach she pikeach But yet, he did not have kahuna and kesetayr. He didn't have a kesamalchus, whatever he considered. And he was jealous. Now, why is this relevant to us? Because maybe we could learn something. Do you ever suffer from envy? I don't know. I know I do. You know, sometimes you look at somebody else's achievements, their accomplishments, and you get, wow, I wish I could get to do that. Sometimes it could be somebody's marriage, be somebody's children. It could be somebody standing in the community. How come he's always been on? He's, he's on the dais by the uh, pick your favorite forum, right? So kinna is a powerful emotion. Most of us suffer from it. I'm not going to say all of us. This is the parsha of kinna. Maybe we could learn something out of it to help ourselves. Why? I mean, kinna is, what does is, Shleimah, the Chachami Kaladim say? Rekev atzomois kinna. It eats you up inside like an acid. It ate up kairach. So if we could figure out maybe something about it, maybe it could help us in our lives. So think of this. Kairach means the bald guy. Now, it's interesting that, I mean, Befrat the Torah sort of makes a, we know that it's about respect. We say, uh, and when we call somebody the bald guy, it doesn't seem so complimentary to Kairach, unless there's some type of a message here. So let me share with you, what's the one way you can change your looks? I mean, pre-plastic surgery, how's that? To express yourself. I guess you could wear makeup. I mean, some men wear makeup. Most of us don't. What's the way we change the way we look? For the most part, is our hair, our beard, our facial hair, our, the hair in our head. If you have, you know, you could have long flowing hair, probably means you're, I don't know, a rock star or a nazir. You could have a number two or a number one or a zero, depending on which type of chassid you are. You know, yeshiva boy will have a number two or a number three, whatever it may be. Or you could have, if you went to Hevron, you know, you could have a chup, but a beard, a long beard, a short beard. We express our individuality. The only way we can is through our hair. I'm talking about our bodily appearances. So here really represents individuality. Now, where did Kairach stand on individuality? He comes to Moshe and Aaron and he says, We're all the same. What do we need you for? We're all holy. We don't need you. So Kairach is really the first socialist, communist. We're all equal, animal farm. But here's the question. If we're all equal, if if it's a mamleches kaihanim, it's a whole mamle, a whole nation of kaihanim, why do we need a kain gadol for? We're all kaihanim. So that's the question that Kairach poses, sort of like the question from Animal Farm. If we're all equal, why are some more equal than others? So to the person who believes we're all equal, that idea, so then the concept of you being better than me 
is really very upsetting. I mean, we're equal. Why do your kids go to this yeshiva and mine didn't get in there? Or why did you accomplish this and I didn't? And, and it burns when we see the other person. We see his, for me, it's accomplishments. I, I'm like, by nature, I like to pump out, you know, whatever it may be, whatever I'm in. I, it's about productivity. I see somebody who's more productive. I say, is he drinking green grass in the morning that's allowing it? Like, what's happening over here? So whatever your particular pressure point may be, that's where Kinna comes in. What's the solution? What's the answer to Kenna? Well, I think the answer to Kenna is, well, let's face it. We believe this Shishim Ribayasiyas Latira, 600,000 letters in the Tyra. If it's missing the upside down nun, one of the most unique ICS in the Torah, Vahibin Sayarin, or it's missing a Yud, any place in the other five Chumashim, the Torah is possible either way. Every letter has its mission. Everybody has their job, has their Shlichas. You know, Rabunim of Pshischa famously said, he said, if the Rabbi Shalom came to me and he said, Binim, chvilde machen vi Avram Avinu, I want to make you like Avram Avinu. He says, I would answer, Kaviach, I would answer, you know, you already have an Avram Avinu and you don't have a Binim. I want to be Binim. You don't have a Bunim. I want to be me. I don't want to be Avram Avinu. Imagine if somebody said to you, you could be Chaim Kenyetsky or yourself. Who wouldn't say that? Rabbinim of Shishchu was all, he says, if I was offered to be Avram Avinu, I wouldn't. Why? Because he has his Shlichas and I have my Shlichas. And I don't know which one is bigger. At the end of the Parikhavav, he says, Whatever umness you have, whatever business you have, you have your own Derech Hasidus. He says, Tairasayim Nasay is not the same Derech Hasidus like a workman who has to rent himself out every day to do manual labor. And he says, As a businessman, has a, dis- has a different one. And he says, Each one, what's your job? Lasay's Nachas Ruach You're here to do give Nachas with your particular mission. That's what Benim said. I don't want to be Avram, I want to be Binim. I don't want to be Avram Avinu. So what does that mean? If each of us are different, let me ask you, what's greater, the great white shark or a beluga whale? Who's greater? A, a lion, the great lion of Africa, or the bald eagle? A grizzly bear or a tiger? Which one is greater? And it's absurd. What do you mean, which one is greater? I'm a grizzly bear, he's a tiger. That's how we're supposed to look at our, each one of our own shlichas. What is Kairach? Kairach believes, no, no, no. We're all the same. We, we march in unison as a communist, as an army, comrade. And therefore, no comrade should be greater than the other. And what does Kairach make his point? He shaves all the hair in his head. Kairach is bald. He has no hair whatsoever. He lost all his individuality. So what's the solution to Kinna? Think of our individuality. Oh, I'm the Yud. I'm the Bays. I'm the Gimel. I'm in this Parsha. Oh, I'm different. And you know what? You may be the most greatest great white shark. So what? I'm a beer. And a shark isn't greater than a beer. You have your mission and I have mine. My job is less is nachas ruach I could be more nachas ruach if I do my humble, humble, humble job well than the greatest eagle soaring in the clouds if he's not doing it the way he should be. So what's the message? If we want to conquer kinna, celebrate our own individuality. Let's go to our riddle of the week. The Gemara in Sanhedrin on Kuftes says, "Adas koyrach ein lohen chelik loylam haba, shenemar vatachasaleim aretz loylam hazeh, vayevaydu mitaychakol loylam haba." Divrei Rabbi Kiva, "Adas koyrach ein lohen chelik loylam haba." Here's the question. The Gemara continues on Daf Kufyuramid Beis, and it says, "Doyr hamidbar ein lohen chelik loylam haba, shenemar b'midbar hazeh yitamu." Visham Yamusu, Yutamu Bailamaza, Yamusu Bailam Haba. I don't understand. If they're part of the 
Doir Hamidbar Adas Kairach. And the Doir Hamidbar, the Am Toy Leiv of Heim, Beheim Liyadu Drachi. What is it? Yitamul Oilam Haba. They have the Oilam Haba. Why do we need a special Limut to tell you that Kairach Vadaseilam Chelag Leilam Haba? That is our riddle of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. So let's go to our wonderful guests. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Eric Baxter. He's a senior counsel at Beckett, and he's represented uh, various clients in religious organizations as individuals on a wide array of religious liberty disputes, Um, the latest being the one with Yeshiva University, where it was sued for uh, by an LBGTQ club demanding, you know, representation. Um, We'll get into it. Welcome, uh, Eric. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Eric, can you tell us shorthand to our lay audience what the disagreement was? Because some of the questions we've had was, wait, you know, yeshiva for ages, you know, their attitude was, look, you can open up any club you want. But it seems that wasn't enough, and this club wanted more. Like, what, what's the crux of the, uh, of, of the dispute that caused the litigation? Sure. At the undergraduate level, YU has always exercised some control over what clubs it will recognize. It has never had a pride alliance club or something like it at the undergraduate level. And so some students sued under the New York City Human Rights Law saying they should have an official Pride Alliance club, and Yeshiva said that it would be inconsistent with it, uh, the values, the religious atmosphere it seeks to create on campus for its undergraduate students. And so that's the essence of the lawsuit. Now, was, was the Yeshiva okay with them having an unofficial like club, like, you know, guys, go do what you want. We don't monitor clubs. Or was it we actually have mm-hmm. a candle out and we're searching for clubs? Which way was it? So, right, the university has never stopped unofficial clubs from forming, and these students have been meeting, groups of students, LGBTQ students, on campus have been meeting unofficially for over 10 years. The university has always worked with them to make sure that, uh, you know, to talk about their concerns, to make sure that there are appropriate services being provided to LGBTQ students, to create a, a welcoming atmosphere um, so that LGBTQ students feel like they are part of the community. Uh, but the university simply said it didn't want to put its imprimatur on the uh, club by granting it official access or official status, I should so, say. Ne- so now let's go to the litigation. Just give us, again, a, 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 a brief description of each party's stance in the litigation. So, right, the plaintiffs are alleging that under the New York City Human Rights Law, Yeshiva University is a public accommodation and cannot discriminate against them on the basis of sexual orientation. You know, Yeshiva disputes that it's discriminating. It welcomes these students on campus. It controls what clubs it, you know, recognize on campus, and it has the right to do that as a matter of religious autonomy to make its own decisions about uh, what it will do on campus especially decisions that that, uh, impact its religious environment and its values. 
There's also a statutory exemption. The statute itself says that it will not apply to benevolent societies. Those are organizations like the Lions Club, the Civic Organizations, American Legion, Knights of Columbus, fraternal organizations. So the statute exempts all of those types of organizations. It also exempts churches, and it exempts religious institutions, religious schools. Um, that is, is, religious corporations incorporated under the education law is the, the precise uh, language. So that means that REITs, the, the, the theological seminary at Yeshiva University, is, is exempt. Uh, Yeshiva University itself, St. John's University, any religious university in the state of New York is exempt uh, from the statute. The judge said, well, Yeshiva is not really religious because its corporate documents don't have religion splashed all over them. Um, and she ignored the religious statements that are in many of its corporate documents, and she ignored the extensive religious activity that happens on campus. There are few schools, few religious schools in the nation that are as religious as Yeshiva University. And so the ruling uh, really is a threat to all religious institutions in New York uh, because it suggests that you're not religious unless you meet some standard that a judge finds sufficient based on what's in your corporate documents, which, which frankly is not where most religious institutes live out their religion. They live it out in the way they carry out their mission, the way they serve, the way they educate. Uh, you know, corporate documents are not prime religious material in any, for anyone. So, so Eric, why didn't, why didn't, just some ignorant questions, why didn't the Shiva just do an amendment to their documents where they put into it, you know, Yeshiva University, a religious institution, or some other verbiage that would, in the documents, would now have that imprimatur. Well, it's not even clear that that would be enough. Like, what does the judge exactly want? Would she accept if they just said, we are religious? And how is that different from living out your religion every day? It's a complicated matter to go and amend your documents, right? There, have, there are a number of things that could be affected by those types of amendments, that would take legal advice to make and, and time to make that happen. And more importantly, the, yeshiva, the right of Yeshiva University to make its own internal religious decisions is well established and should have been recognized by the court. Now, is there any funding that would be denied them if they had religious uh, uh, institutions somewhere in their document? No, the, and the, that's another misconception. The Supreme Court has made clear in the last five years, three times, including the decision that just came out last week, that says once the government opens a program or funding to private institutions, it cannot exclude institutions or individuals based on religion. So if you're talking about uh, Pell Grants for students to go to school, you can't exclude students just because they're using their religious themselves or because they're taking those funds to a religious school. If it's some kind of you know, government financing, bond financing, once you make that available to any private entity, then the government can't discriminate against religion. There's a common sense, you know, truth to that, right? It's, it makes sense that if you're going to fund private institutions, you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. Now, the government doesn't have to provide benefits to private institutions. Some states um, don't, for example, have funding that students can take to any private school. But New York does. It has Bundy funding um, that could go uh, for students to go to college, and you can't exclude people from it just because they're religious. The Supreme Court this last week said even if you know there are going to be religious things happening on campus, that doesn't matter. So it's not really a matter of the funding being at risk. That was never the question. 
So it's nothing about funding. It's just she's, it, it didn't say it in the documents. Like, I'm just a very pragmatic person. If, if it was me, besides appealing this, because I think it's outrageous, but I would just add a few religious words into my document and say, thank you, Your Honor, we accept your ruling, and guess what? We just made put those words in, and it's not relevant anymore. Yeah, it's not that simple, because what, the judge what, said what that, that, but she also said things. Well, no, because the judge also said, like, yeshiva has to be all religious or not at all. So it's there's no it's not as cut and dry as she just said it's not in your documents. That was the main thing that she relied on. Um, but there already is stuff in the documents. If you read the documents, the the late the charter amendment that she looked at, she just ignored some of the language. The language says that Yeshiva is and continues to be um, devoted to exclusively educational purposes. And she said, oh, exclusively educational, that means you can't be religious. Well, that right there is the government interfering in Yeshiva's religious beliefs for a Jewish institution, educating the whole individual mentally, spiritually, physically is part of their religious they don't they don't distinguish between secular and religious education. It's all one part of one whole. But if you think about what that language is and continues to be devoted to uh, educational purposes, that is continued to be refers back to the prior charter, which says that Yeshiva was founded to promote the study of Talmud. So even there, it's clear that the educational purposes were religious educational purposes, not sec- not just secular educational purposes. The secular stuff came later. Yeshiva, of course, started as as a as a exclusively religious educational institution. So there's the judge is ignoring what is already in the corporate documents, and she's saying other things like, well, you know, you. You have to be all religious or not religious at all. She said, you're not like a house of worship where you're doing core religious functions. So which of those things is she really is really the core of her holding? I'm not sure, but it's a, it, it shows an, a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be a religious institution. Every religious institution. So, so sorry, so, so if, I'm, if I'm a yeshiva, like I'm, and just the largest yeshiva in America is the Lakewood Yeshiva. Could theoretically some student take this judge's ruling and say, look, we're opening up an LBGTQ because uh, you may be religious, but we'll find, you know, you also serve meals, meal bar religious, or we'll find 10 or 20 things that you do that aren't religious, and based on that, we run an LBGTQ club. Do you see any reason why that couldn't be extended? Well, they could do that, and that's the other problem with this decision is the judge said, uh, you know, she said, well, not... We, we raised that concern in our brief. He said, well, you know, they are, they're exaggerating their concerns because lots of schools would qualify as religious. Well, what is the magic amount of religiosity that qualifies? She used St. John's example. St. John's is a fine university. But I think if you took a checklist and compared um, action by action, you would find a lot more religious activity going on at Yeshiva University. I don't know very many schools that require their students to spend two to five hours a day studying uh, the Word of God or that require students to live by uh, strong religious codes that give every student a personal mashgiach or spiritual advisor to advise them throughout their school career. So, um, the judge, this, there's no real standard that Yeshiva knows it can apply to um, to meet the judge's expectations. And even then, Yeshiva, I think, sees now that it has a an opportunity to clarify the law, not just for itself, but for other institutions. So it makes some tweaks to satisfy the judge, but what school is going to be next? And what judge might disagree with her and think that Yeshiva didn't do enough? Um, and so it's important to establish the real, the real baseline standard, which is that religious institutions have autonomy to make their own 
decisions about religious um, affairs on their campuses. What What are the next steps uh, from a legal point of view? Where does this go now? Yeah, so we will be filing um, by tomorrow. They will be on file. We've been waiting just for some internal technical matters to be completed by by the court. We have to wait for the clerk of the court to docket our case, but we are ready now to file a motion for stay, which will protect the university while an appeal is pending. Uh, we will anticipate a ruling on that within the next month. And then there will be possibly a year-long process while we appeal this matter um, to the Intermediate Court of Appeals in New York. This is not unexpected. We anticipated there could be a an adverse ruling at this early stage of the case. Um, we think that the adverse ruling is obviously wrong and it makes some very clear legal errors that the appellate division is likely to correct. And we're prepared to go as high as we need to get this right. We think that in the end there is, you know, some court is going to say, recognize how absurd it is to say that an institution like Yeshiva University is not religious. And so, you know, we just, we have to, take our time to go through the process, but we intend to protect Yeshiva's rights all the way up. I mean, you, you obviously know as well as anybody that the appellate court in New York City, in New York State, it doesn't get much more uh, left-wing than that. Uh, yeah, we understand kind of the perceptions and the, the challenges, and like I said, we're ready to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court if we need to, but we also think that the statutory exemption is very clear and that most judges do try to apply the law and do what's right, and so... I remain optimistic uh, that Yeshiva University will prevail before getting to the United States Supreme Court, but we are not hesitant to go there if needed. And and what what are the odds of getting saved? Like, how, you know, is it like in order to show cause, you have to show you know clear burning need, inevitable loss? Like, what are what are the standards? Yeah, you have to show you have to show a likelihood of you have to show that you're likely to succeed, and you have to show that you're suffering some kind of harm without relief. Um, usually that harm is understood as automatic when it's uh, pressuring you to violate religious beliefs. The courts have generally said that just the pressure alone is sufficient to meet the irreparable harm standard. And then I think we're likely to succeed for the reasons I stated. The First Amendment, which frankly the judge uh, in the trial court ignored, she really didn't address the First Amendment claims, and those are very strong and clear. The court just last term in a decision called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia held that held nine to zero that the city of Philadelphia could not withhold funding from a um, Catholic, Catholic adoption services agency because of its beliefs on marriage and sexuality, which precluded it from providing services to gay and unmarried couples. They had would refer those couples to other institutions. And the court nine to zero said that they, they were entitled to preserve their religious um, beliefs and values even when they were working on a government contract. And here, Yeshiva University is not doing anything for the government. It's not on government contract. It's a, you know, also a private institution. Um, there's strong First Amendment protection here. There's also a very strong statutory protection, which is the only protection that the judge really addressed. And we think it will be hard, even for a judge who ideologically disagrees with Yeshiva's position, it's hard to justify saying that Yeshiva is not religious. So I do remain optimistic. You know, you never know. Uh, it could take a couple of appeals, but I'm optimistic that even at the next level up at the appellate division, which is the intermediate court in New York, that there will be some relief. One more question, unfair question. You can strike it if you want. You represent that um, this is your area of specialty, is religious law. 
is it is it have you ever uh, um, represented an institution defending its religious values who was attacked by co-religionists? Like here we have Jewish students as well as a Jewish judge coming down against the yeshiva, basically saying you know, your religious values are really you know, not that important, inconsistent with our needs. Is it is it something? Is it unusual, or does this happen all the time in their experience? Certainly, it happens that religious communities don't always agree on the same thing. So we represented a number of religious institutions, for example, in opposing um, the Affordable Care Act's uh, contraception mandate that required all employers to provide uh, contraception coverage in their health care plans. Well, you know, there are a lot of people of the same religious denomination who who thought that that mandate was a good idea. So it, it creates some interfaith disagreement, but the beauty of the law is that the First Amendment doesn't just protect the beliefs of denominations, not just beliefs of the Catholic Church or the Jewish tradition generally or the Latter-day Saints. It protects individuals in their religious beliefs, and those beliefs can be idiosyncratic. They can be different from what their main denomination teaches, as long as they are a sincere religious belief and they are entitled to protection of the First Amendment. So, Yes, we we see this kind of disagreement, and um, but fortunately, the law protects the individual institution or the individual person in their beliefs. Eric, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me on the show. My honor. Thanks. And, and good and good luck in your appeal. Uh, thank you. I think we're optimistic. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Joining us from Florida. I think is now the, the number one most popular state in the United States. The newly number one is Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. He's the rabbi of the Boca Raton Synagogue, which is one of the largest shoals in the country. A Welcome, Rabbi Ephraim. Thank you so much. Great to be back together again. Okay, here's my question. The, we spoke to the attorney who represents YU, and they said he's gone to court to get a stay where they do not have to uh, while this is being litigated, which will take a number of years. But it's not sure he'll get a stay. So we're, let's talk hypothetical. Let's talk, let's talk tomorrow. He doesn't get a stay. The yeshiva now has to allow a gay club that wants equal visibility, acceptance, wants to be embraced, funded, march in the parade, etc. Here's the question. We have the Gemara in Saita says that Agrippas was a guy who became Melech, which is against the Torah. So when they were raiding the Torah, it says, the Gemara says, Zolgu ain of the Mayas. He cried. And Chazal, they said, they felt, oh, he was, he was felt estranged, so they embraced him, and they said, no, no, don't worry, Achinuat, even though you were a guy, you're not supposed to be Melech, Ger, whatever, you're Achinuat and you're Roy Samalchus. It was Hanifa, which Rabbi Yerina brings in the Nisra Daraisa, why the Gemara says, at that moment where they embraced and they said, Achinuat, which was a forgery of the Tyra, the Ziyufa Tyra, Tyra says, you're not Achinu, but to, to, uh, to be accommodating, it caused the Gzeira against Kal Yisrael, Gzeira's Misa against Kal Yisrael. We don't forge the Torah to accommodate, to be polite. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, I was, uh, I was at a, a meeting most recently, and they said, David, for one day, would you not eat kosher just to accommodate the host? And the answer is no. We don't do that. So now you're in a situation where the judge says you can't, so we have three choices. The yeshiva could say, listen, you know, it's, uh, we, we will allow them to march, come up with certain heterium, which we could discuss later. We could say, alternatively, uh, we'll close the yeshiva, which is what the mitziv did on some level or another when they made his life miserable in Belajan, which, or alternatively, could say, listen, you know, we stood up against 
going back from the beginning, uh, Romans, let's go back to Persians, or Avram Avinu when it came to Slumen, right? To, Nim, to Nimrod, we've had Persians, we've had Romans, we've had Crusaders, we, we shafted our children rather than this. And now we have a Jewish judge who wants to say, you know, cause us to throw away our Torah, which we've held dear for the last 2,000 years at the cost of so much life. And the answer is, you know what? A crusader, we're not going to be in a spoil from this, and we're not going to continue. Which of these three routes would you suggest the yeshiva take? It's a great question. It's a powerful and a painful question. And really, it's a question ultimately for the Russia yeshiva, for the postkim, which Baruch Hashem, Yeshiva University has outstanding and wonderful ones to ask. And the legal question is a question for lawyers and they'll debate, and I understand there's a very strong position, even as a secular university component that takes funding, its core identity is religious and there's a strong argument to be made. My contribution to the conversation is a Rav who has, who has dealt with this issue within the community, who's dealt with this issue personally with people that I know, is, is to respond in the following way. On the one end, I think we need to have very strong empathy and sensitivity, but we also have to remain principled and true. And the sensitivity and empathy runs not only to the people that we love, but also to the position of the Rebona Shalom, that a Kurdish Baruch was counting on us to stand for and advocate and defend and advance his vision for his world and the definitions and the expectations that he has for us. I'm not sure the Agrippa's parallel works, because in that case, there was an actual crossing of a boundary, there was a violation, there was something wrong which was done. Here, one could push back to you and say that this is a group for students who are pledged and promised to be celibate. They're not actually doing the Isser itself. They simply are public about the fact that they are oriented differently, they have a different sense of attraction, the expectation or the default, the assumptions that we made about the average Talmud and Yeshiva that they'll one day marry and procreate and have a family of a husband and wife are not true about them and that we should know that about them. So I don't know that the parallels in entirely true, and they would argue that the current iteration of the, of the group doesn't include the word pride, they're not arguing to march in a parade, they simply want a group in which they can be themselves, be visible for who they are, not hide in the shadows, not be discriminated against, and I think we have to have empathy for that. You know, there, there may be gay teens listening to this, or young adults, adolescents, and they need to know that they're not wholesale being kicked out or pushed out, or that there's no space for them within a Torah community. But on the other hand, as I said, I think that we have to be incredibly principled and true to who we are, and that's where the issue of this group, this club lies because it does include the yearning of language like visibility and it does include unconditional acceptance and it does include inclusion and, and those are maybe words that are very popular today in the, in, the, in the culture around us but in the Torah institution grounded in Torah principles and expectations we don't, we don't expose or we don't promote the part of ourselves that's struggling to be consistent with Torah in a way that craves visibility and inclusion and acceptance. We, we may look for support and I think that for Gay Yeshiva University with whom I'm very proud, the, the stance, the principled stance they're taking and what they're trying to do to toe the line, much easier to cave and to be flexible. It's not easy to do what they're doing and I think they deserve our, our support in this area. But be very clear, David, there's not a Yeshiva probably on the planet that doesn't have students who identify this way but they go to that Yeshiva understanding that that's not an environment where they'll find visibility, inclusion, acceptance for that component of who they are, for that struggle with which they have. Maybe they've spoken to a Rebbe, maybe they have been able to confide in, in, in somebody who's a, a mentor to them, and they deserve to be able to find that, and to find support and acceptance, and to be able to create um, advice about how to navigate life when, when the assumptions that we make about others may not be true about such a person. That's where the empathy and sensitivity comes in. We have to have an absolute intolerance for bullying or name-calling or discrimination, but we also have to not bully or discriminate against Hashem and His Torah, HaKadoshah, and our Halacha and our Masorah, and we have to be principled in it. So I don't think it's fair. Somebody who is 
struggling in this area, which they may be offended even by the use of the word struggle, but somebody who's struggling in this area, to assume that they're going to go to a yeshiva and that the yeshiva knowing what the Torah holds, as complicated, as difficult, as painful as the Torah's position is for that individual, of which it is. And every person I've met with, every person I've met with who struggles in this area would give everything in the world not to. Would, give, would donate body parts, would literally give a piece of themselves to not have to, to like others of their peers, simply be able to be attracted to the opposite and to be able to marry and, and so on. They'd give anything. So we have to have empathy for their struggle, but they have to have empathy for the institution who's trying to create an environment that is sensitive, supportive, but at the same time principled to who we are and what we hold dear. So I, I can't speak to the Pesach about what, what the yeshiva will or should or would need to do, and I can't speak to the legality of it, but I could speak to, we're living in a world today where identity politics and identity intersectionality and this notion of promoting identity based on what feels good or who we are, what's convenient, what's comfortable, what we want. The entire Torah is all about Torah being our core, most central identity. And the hierarchy of identities or in competing identities that Torah reigns supreme. Even if it means having to suppress another piece of ourselves as painful as that is. Go back to Avram Avinu and the Akedah. His identity as a parent was secondary to his identity as an Eved Hashem. He had to suppress his identity as, as a loving parent to be willing to, to offer Yitzchak in the Akedah. And there are Akedahs that others have to do heroically. Heroically through life, there are Akedahs that people have struggles and in these hierarchy are competing senses of identity of who they are. There are Akedahs, sacrifices they have to make, but that's, that's who we are. That's our people. Avram Avinu put in us that Koach and we have we are the, the beneficiaries of that DNA. We are his progeny. We have, that, we have that capacity. And we should support the people who are engaged in that struggle and t- trying to overcome it, but not in a way that we are demanding inclusion and visibility and acceptance, which ultimately distorts and blurs the lines of what the Torah is expecting of us in trying to conform to what has become the world around us. So let, let, let me just put to you the question differently. If they came to your show and they said, our show, we demand... Uh, club with your full, et cetera, acceptance, uh, visibility, marching, whatever it may be. What would you do then? Now it's not, you're not popping into the yeshiva, it's your show, what would you do? It's an absolute non-starter. We're an Orthodox shul, we're a Torah institution, and a person who wants to join, we love, we welcome, and we'll make space, but you have to come here on our rules and not impose yours. So um, there are well, people. But what happens if a judge, if, but I don't mean that. I'm, look, I'm, I'm the most, I think, I'm full understanding. We've done a number of programs about this issue, and I'm considered, oh, left-wing, with too understanding, too understanding. I'm not talking about judging the people at all. I mean, if they come to you, they get a court order that the Boca Raton Synagogue has to have a gay club because you, you took some bond money when you finance, you don't pay taxes to the local municipalities, you're beholden to them. Mescamino, what the reason is. How, what do you react? And now the judge shows up, they show up with an order where you have to have a gay club. And in fact, I understand you're having a big thing, your Chaga Pesach Sukkis, we're marching the Boko Haram Synagogue Gay Club. What do you do? We'd go to the end of the earth to fight it. We would stop uh, nowhere. We wouldn't stop to, to fight it. And, and ultimately, the same way that we would never institutionalize a violation of Shabbos or of Kashrus or of Tarasa Meshbacha or of anything else, we, we couldn't compromise that of ourselves. We know the Marshal holds that, that it's, uh, it's Yarek Zayavir. That's why... Ziyaf HaTorah is Yarek Yavor. That's why they couldn't uh, mistranslate the, the sugya of, of uh, Shor Shal Akam. So at some point, we'd have to ask a shayla, And of course, we would defer to the Das Torah told us. But, but I imagine that we wouldn't, we'd be uncompromising in that area because this is a core central fight. If it's not this, it'll be the next thing. And we have to stay true and principled for who we are. Let me ask you a political question. And being that you're in Florida, I could get away with it. Do you believe that um, since 1970 or so, we've had a really liberal Supreme Court and 
liberals have been heralded as like, you know, it's a, what do liberals believe? They believe in em- empathy, sharing, understanding, compassion. And the United States said after, you know, 200 years of, uh, of a sort of right-wing conservatives, let's go, let's try the left. And it's 50 years later of the most liberal Supreme Courts we've seen, and we've seen the disintegration of family. I believe, you know, when, when I was growing up, 74% of Americans were married. Today, it's going to go below 50. I mean, family is the backbone of who we are as a people. First mitzvah is given to call you strolls in a celibate, in Kippa, we speak about the sanctity of family is 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 the 20 percent of Asaris Adibris, right of the of the Decalogue. So it's been the attack on family, the attack on marriage. In fact, marriage may be down. There's only one marriage which is is heralded, and that is open up the New York Times every week. Half of them are gay marriage. That's the only marriage that's sacred anymore. School prayer disallowed. Um, you can do anything on a field except what the Supreme Court just ruled, except for pray. Right, it, it, going down the list, attack after attack after attack. Human life in embryo, which we, you know, the Gemara says, Darshins, Adam Adam Nefesh goes on that it has a din of Ritzicha. People screaming at the people, we must kill them like Ritzicha, like with like like in with red face with with fervor. Let's go kill the, the right to kill the child because it's a, because of inconvenience. Do you think that is it possible? The latest Supreme Court ruling is that at a certain point. They looked at what's become of America, and maybe the, the America as a whole is starting to vomit and saying, 50 years of liberal policies, this is just an example of, and this is another example, gays used to be, was a death penalty. Clinton, when he broke ground and he said, don't ask, don't tell, was considered very less. Today, don't ask, don't tell is the most, is the most bigoted person. Not only are we allowed to, you have to sign on my marriage document, in your shul, so you're kippah by day, that, is it possible we just said, hey, this has just become bizarre. What, what they've created is something that is, is so anti-religion. It's basically 50 years of we, we war on religion. That's too extreme of a statement, what I've just said. I, I don't know if we can ascribe to the Supreme Court our, our understanding of Munis Chachamim, but I do believe that their conclusion was probably based on their understanding of the Constitution and was from a legal analysis and not a, a moral or cultural one. But I do think that we are seeing a pendulum swing back a little bit. We don't know. And until then, we as a community have to turn inward and have to be protective and be careful for ourselves. You know, I, I just read a study, the Gallup had a study, that belief in God among United States adults is at a record low. And I have to imagine that the correlation between the abandoning of belief in God, this new God, which is the pursuit of happiness and pleasure over the pursuit of holiness and service or faith, and, and that's the, the world that we have now that has no boundaries. There are no boundaries in dress. There are no boundaries through social media. People share emotionally everywhere, everything. There's nothing that's protected. There's nothing that there's a modesty emotionally. There's no modesty physically. There are no boundaries to define what we took as the most basic definitions. A man and a woman were very basic definitions. Zachar and Akeva Bra'am, there's no longer a boundary to even define gender. So there's been the blurry and the dissolution, the dissolving of boundaries left and right. What are Torah does is it builds boundaries. It gives definitions. It creates walls. It creates principles and it creates policies. And we have to double down on that, not only for ourselves, but you know, Yiddishkeit Torah was never meant just for the Jews. It was for us to teach and share with the world. And as much as we turn inward to protect ourselves, which is as important as now as ever, I do think we have a responsibility to also influence and impact the world around us to stand up and to speak up for what we believe with sensitivity and with empathy and with respect and with uh, all of those principles which are true for us as well, but also to be become principled. 
to stop being defensive and apologetic. Again, you go back to Avram Avinu. Avram was a Ivri. It goes back to the very birth of our people, our greatest ancestor. Avram Avinu was a Ivri. He was Me'ever. He had the courage to be on the other side of, as everyone else on the issues that were important to be principled on. And we have to be willing to be Ivrim, Me'ever. We have to have the courage, respectfully and articulately and compellingly, to be able to be willing to be on the other side of these issues. And that's where we're running into this great risk. And we're running into this risk that's going to penetrate into our own schools and our own systems and our own schools. And again, some segments of the community are more vulnerable than others, but we're going to find children who demand to be referred to by pronouns. We're going to find the greater world around us, the, the loss of these boundaries and basic definitions. And we need to respectfully, articulately, persuasively, in, in, in a loving way and, and with empathy, but also with principle. Stop shying down, stop being defensive, stop being apologetic. To be principled about, about all these things. So what is the motive of the Supreme Court? I don't know. I, can't, I certainly can't speak to that. But I do think that the world is increasingly becoming unrecognizable at a rate that we never imagined. During Obama's first term in office, he was against gay marriage. He was on the record against gay marriage. Obama's first term in office, that wasn't that long ago. I just saw a video of, of then-Senator Biden saying, speaking in, in testimony, Marriage is between a man and a woman. Stop asking for it to be anything else. That's what it always was. That's what it will be. So the world is changing rapidly. Every day you wake up with new demands, expectations, definitions that are coming into the world. And, and more than ever, the world needs us as, as advocates and as agents of Hashem to represent that truth in that way, in that way. But come back to that, that core question of these students and, and the people within our community who disagree or are trying to navigate and find their way. There has to be some mutual understanding, some middle ground where we make space and we make room, even though it may be uncomfortable for us. But we also ask, don't push too hard or too far. Don't demand what we can't provide. Don't expect something that's unrealistic from a system that you know, that you're aware of, that you're familiar with. You know the halacha. You know the psukim. You know our boundaries. So within those boundaries, can we find that room, that space, that ability to show love and support, to find a way for you to navigate still within a system that is so beautiful they want to be most nefesh to still be part of? Great. But you have to meet us in a place that we can both live with, and violating or crossing the boundaries of our Torah Kedosha is not that place. Thank you very much for that, friend. Thank you. Joining us from New York is Rabbi Yaakov Sasson. He's a Muslim of Rabbi Tzikolchan of YU. He published uh, the Shiuri Harav on Sanhedrin. His historian has written many articles, many historical journals, etc. Welcome, Rabbi Yaakov. Thank you, Rabbi It's a pleasure to speak with you. Rabbi Yaakov, in our tortured history for the last 2,000 years, surely there have been many instances where governments have tried to make Shinoyim in shoals and yeshivas, the chulu, the chulu. Given that historic, let's use that historical perspective as sort of as a, a well-found to try to, you know, use in our present situation. What's the history on this? So um, it sounds like you might be alluding to the government shutting down the Volusian yeshiva in 1892. Was that sort of your the way the direction you were yes. heading? I think. That- I think that's the sort of the obvious one, but then right. there have been many xeris against Bafik Nasius. I mean, you see, going all the way back, they didn't allow they didn't allow us to let do Prius Atayra, so we had to do Nevi'im. We had him buy Shani. They 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 auctioned off the Kahuna Gedola. I mean, tampering with Yiddishkeit for either for money or power or anti-Semitism goes back a long history. So it's 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 Belagian is a prime example, but I think it's so much broader than that. No. 
Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, to address the Volusion example specifically, um, I do have a few comments on that. So first, um, I think there are definitely a few distinctions between what happened in Volusion and what's happening now. Um, and a lot of my comments are going to be mainly based on Dr. Shul Stamfer's work on the yeshivas uh, in the 19th century. He has a few editions of his book on that, which is a fantastic book. And one thing he uncovered in his like updated edition from about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago was that the government didn't really care about, um, you know, the secular studies in Volusian. We all know the, you know, the famous letter from Chaim Berlin that the Nitziv closed the yeshiva rather than, you know, introducing or, you know, allowing um, a significant amount of secular studies. But Dr. Stamper uncovered that the, the government didn't really care about the secular studies. They just used that as a pretext to shut down the yeshiva. So um, really there was no other way for that to end because, you know, they, they were upset about the unrest and the turmoil in the yeshiva, so they wanted the yeshiva to be shut down and they just used secular studies um, as a way to get at that, at that goal. But besides that, I think the, the other thing that's really you know, needs to be pointed out about the Volusian situation is that what Dr. J.J. Schachter has written quite a bit about this, that there already was like a minimal amount of secular studies in Volusian and um, with the Nitziv, basically from the Nitziv's point of view, he didn't know that, you know, they just wanted to shut him down. He thought that they wanted to introduce the secular studies. But from the Nitziv's point of view, the new regulations would really fundamentally change the character of the yeshiva because they, they would require them to have been studying secular studies from nine until three, and they wouldn't be able to have any learning at night. So it would be left with only a couple of hours of uh, learning in the yeshiva. So the Nitziv basically decided to shut down the yeshiva rather than enact these regulations, which would uh, fundamentally alter the character of the yeshiva. And I think that's a sort of important point that when you're looking at Volozhin as sort of a precedent that it wasn't just, it wasn't a minor kind of change that the Nitziv was such a kanai that he wouldn't allow even a change kihuzeh. It was such a you know, major change that it would have fundamentally changed the character of the yeshiva. And now coming back to, you know, the yeshiva university, in 1970, there was a, sort of a public machlokis between Rav Soloveitchik and Dr. Belkin about the, what was known as the secularization of the yeshiva college, in which they changed the charter and they made it into a non-sectarian institution and, um, with that, they were able to receive additional government funding, and that was sort of the decision that sort of laid the groundwork for the, you know, the the decision from the judge uh, in the last week. So what was interesting uh, there was that when the Rav gave um, a very, uh, very publicized um, drusha at actually the Chag HaSmicha that year, in which he spoke very strongly against what he called the secularization of, of Yeshiva College. And in the end, he basically threatened to resign from the Yeshiva over the issue. And if you read the speech, it's pretty clear that he felt that this secularization process wasn't just about changing the charter, that it was going to fundamentally um, alter the character of the Yeshiva. So I, I sort of see a, a parallel there between what happened in Volusian that the Nitziv, um, you know, decided to shut down the yeshiva rather than let the government fundamentally change the the 
character of the Shiva to where one where they would be dealing mainly with secular studies. And I see a parallel there to his, you know, great, great, great grandson of Yashaber, who, you know, sort of publicly announced that he was ready to leave Yeshiva University if um, these, you know, changes in the charter would uh, change the character of the yeshiva as he as he feared. Now, he, obviously, he did not resign from the yeshiva in 1970, so I'm not entirely sure exactly what his maskana was and why he decided to stay. But to me, I see like sort of these two cases um, as very, very closely related in that these Russia yeshiva felt that it was worthwhile to shut down the yeshiva rather than fundamentally change the character of the institution. Now, whether or not that's going on here is not, in in our situation, is definitely not a question for me to answer. But if you're looking for historical context, I think those two cases definitely provide us some context in terms of the thought process of Russia yeshiva with dealing with these issues where um, the yeshivas have been sort of, you know, forced to adapt um, based on sort of external government forces. In terms of the general question about whether things that were going on in the college um, that were not to, you know, the lolofi ruach of the Russia yeshiva, that's, gen that's not really a new issue, and that's been sort of going on really since the, the yeshiva started. And one example I thought would be could die to highlight, which is obviously different, but you see sort of the different perspectives from different Rosh Yeshiva. The issue that sort of highlights it, that I thought pretty well, is the issue of biblical criticism being taught um, in the Yeshiva, in the college. So it was interesting. In There was a Magachir in uh, the early years in the Yeshiva. His name was Rav Moshe Aaron Poleof. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was... Uh, no, I haven't, no. So he he was uh, you know obviously a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was Rav Gifter's first Rebbe in uh, Yeshiva Shritzchachanan, and um, his family um, basically has like an internal memoir um, that you know of his his I think son his son interviewed him extensively about uh, you know his basically his entire life's history. Um, and one of the stories he told was that uh, sometime in the 1920s, Dr. Revel invited Rav Chaim Heller to give a number of lectures in the Yeshiva sort of disproving biblical criticism. And Chaim Heller was obviously a great goan and 100% a kosher yid, uh, and a huge Talmud Chacham, and obviously no pikpukim about him. But Rabbi Koleyov and the other Russian yeshiva, including um, the Meitzer Eli of Shlom Falashek, they were unhappy with this because they felt that what, why do you have to expose the Talmudim to biblical criticism? You know, it was they'll, they'll hear all the questions, and then uh, they won't necessarily understand the answers, and they'll just be left with fake in their Amuna. So the, the Rosh Yeshiva were very, very opposed to this series of lectures. So, you know, and again, like I said, there was there have been many, many things that have happened in the Yeshiva over the years that the Rosh Yeshiva has what been happened? opposed to. Um, what, was the, what was the end well, of that story with the Bible criticism there? Ah, so uh, Rav Chaim Heller came, he gave the first cheer, and afterwards Rabbi Peleev spoke to some of his Talmidim to get, uh, you know, basically... Did, to find out, did they understand everything he said? And it was pretty much as he expected that they understood all the questions, but uh, the answers, they, they weren't, you know, holding enough to, to understand everything that Rukhaim Heller said. So he thought it was uh, dangerous, and the Russia Yeshiva pressured Dr. Revel pretty strongly, and he actually canceled the rest of the, the series of lectures. So that was... You know, the playoff, the Maitre, they, they sort of worked on internally trying to get the changes that uh, they approved of.
I thought very interesting was that a similar issue came up about 50 years later in the early 70s. There's a well-known letter that Rav Shach put out, basically uh, putting an iser on anybody from going to a michola in Israel. And somebody had shown him the michola course catalog, and he was very upset by it. And one of the courses that he found very upsetting was that uh, Rav Cooperman, who was the head of michola was teaching a course on biblical criticism and its techiyah. So Rav Shach basically had the same taina as uh, Rav Peleoff. They actually, they both learned, uh, I think, by Rav Zalman, and they knew each other. So Rav Shach had the same taina that, you know, why do you have to teach the girls uh, biblical criticism? They'll, they'll, they'll get all the questions, and who says that they'll understand the answers? So that was one of his uh, major tainas against Michala at the time. He also had a problem with uh, Rabbi Rakefet was teaching, um, I think, Inyone, basically Inyone Avna Ezer, like uh, Inyone Gittin and, and Chalitza and, and things like that to, to the girls, and Roshach didn't like that either. So he put out an Isser against Michala that nobody should go there for, basically, in large part because of the biblical criticism. So obviously that's a, another approach where, you know, one was that Peleov and the Maitre tried to work internally. Roshach, you know, was obviously a bit more of a kanai, and he tried to offer the institution uh, entirely. And sort of a middle ground, I think, was similar to, um, I, I mentioned that um, earlier I've done quite a bit of work on the life of Ramosha Soloveitchik. So when he was at the Tachkamoni base Medrash in Warsaw, um, the sort of the head of the institution, his name was Professor Balaban, and at a certain point, Rav Moshe's son, Rav Yashaber, told Rav Moshe that Balaban was teaching, I don't know if it was biblical criticism or um, certain academic approaches to the Gemara that uh, basically Rav Yashaber told Rav Moshe that he's teaching Kvira, and Rav Moshe was very upset by that. And it sort of caused a rift between Rav Moshe and Balaban, and eventually um, Rav Moshe left the institution. I'm not sure if he was fired or if he left willingly, but um, there were other conflicts there, but um, that sort of drove a wedge between them, and, and the end result was that uh, Rav Moshe left the institution to come to... Which institution? The Tachkimoni based Medrash in Warsaw. This is the mid-1920s. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. so Moshe was the head of the base medrash and uh, of the basically the the yeshiva program, but Balaban was the head of I think the entire institution. So you know, obviously the teaching you know whatever criticism on the Gemara that was not in uh, line with covered to Chazal, Rav Moshe and Rav Yashaber considered that, um, in the words of Shulamis Meiselman's book, she called it uh, blasphemy, So, which I think would more or less we would call kfira. So, you know, obviously there's been lots of situations where, you know, you have a yeshiva that's attached to a, you know, a secular studies institution where not everything that goes on in the secular studies institution is, is Lefi Ruach of the Russia Yeshiva. So I think we have here like sort of a different, you know, examples, models of how different Russia Yeshiva would deal with the issue. Um, again, Rav Peleoff, the Maitre, tried to work internally to get the desired result. Um, Rav Shach put a blanket Isser on the institution, and Ramosha Soloveitchik, you know, basically eventually left the institution due to that. But it's not like he picked up and left right away. He uh, he continued on in that institution for, for a while after, but eventually the um, the lines were 
you know, the the lines were drawn and um, it was too much for, for them to come to a compromise. So Rosh ended up leaving. And I think that sort of gets back to the issue I mentioned earlier about, you know, Voloshin and what the Rav said in 1970, which is that, you know, at a certain point, if the character of the yeshiva has changed to such an extent, then um, that's when the Nitziv decided to shut down Voloshin. That's when the Rav thought that he might, you know, have to leave Yeshiva University. And that's when Rav Meshach Soloveitchik thought that uh, he had to leave Tachkimoni. So again, whether any of this is um, comparable to our current situation, I don't know. But historically, I think, you know, we see a bunch of different models for how Russia Yeshiva have dealt with either internal or outside pressure from the government in terms of making changes to their yeshivas. So uh, one more, I think, interesting ha'ara is that the issue of... Um, you know, student groups or student clubs that um, are not approved by the Rosh Yeshiva, that's something that um, also existed in uh, Volazhin itself, where they had basically a clandestine Zionist support group. So, you know, they had a group of Talmudim that were interested in Zionism. They would get together. They, you know, they, they had uh, secret meetings, things like that. Um, and the Russia Yeshiva were very not approving of of those groups. The Basically, for different reasons, though. The Nitziv, my impression is that his opposition to the groups was more, you know, he didn't want the aspect of Bittal Torah and distractions in the yeshiva, whereas his Reprime Soloveitchik, who was his assistant Rosh Yeshiva, was very opposed on ideological grounds um, because he was very against Zionism. So when they were able to find out about the existence of that group, they sort of shut down, I think, one iteration, but then the group sort of popped up again. Um, and it was something that they were sort of constantly fighting that uh, the Talmudim, some of the Talmudim at least, had uh, these Natiyas to be involved in, in these Zionist clubs, and the Rosh Yeshiva were constantly fighting to, to get them shut down when they could. Well, Yaakov, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge about this. Thank you very much. I hope I was helpful.